Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Before we get to the show, let's talk about the show. Uh, Jason Miller, welcome. Hey, thanks. We are in South Bend, Indiana, in the shadows of Notre Dame campus. I feel like that E on the end shouldn't be silent. I feel like it's overlooked. It's like a G in lasagna. What? That's, that's great. I don't, really, I don't really have a response to that. You, fine. Okay. I could just be doing a monologue if you're not going to help with this. Um, well, I, you're doing great. Okay. Um, so we are here uh, next to Notre Dame's Kansas, and we have just wrapped up a conversation with David Bentley Hart. Yeah. Jay, this is a big deal for you. Yeah. I'm a, like, uh, his, uh, his, some of his work is you really You fanboy pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. You did. Yeah. Between his The Experience of God, which I try to get all my friends to read, um, it's just like a definition of what the word God means. And then his essays on baseball, um, I'm a pretty big geek. Yeah. Uh, we end up talking about baseball for a solid 15 minutes. And I thought about cutting it and moving it to the end of the podcast, but I typically like don't ever edit these things. So what I'm going to tell you is if you are not a baseball fan, uh, I'll put this in the show notes, the actual timestamp, but the first 15 minutes is just us talking about baseball. And if you don't want to hear us talking about baseball, just fast forward that and then we actually get into the subject matter about his new book, which is That All Shall Be Saved. But if people don't know who David Bentley Hart is, Jay, you want to just give him a brief bio? Yeah, he's Eastern Orthodox philosopher, theologian. Um, he's he's kind of I think he's kind of a juggernaut in terms of like some of the books he's written. People tend to love him or hate him, and some of that's because of the positions he takes, and some of that's because the way he writes. Um, but if you want to, if you if you just enjoy good sarcastic theological writing, he's your guy. Yeah, he is. He will elicit a strong response, mm-hmm. uh, I think, and uh, good conversation with him. I think you're going to enjoy it. So, uh, anything else? That you, oh, there's a, like some NT Wright. Him and NT Wright have some beef. Yeah, I think especially around um, around competing visions of how to translate the New Testament. Because they both had New Testament translations that came out within yeah. a year or two of each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the end, I try to bring them back together because, as you all know from the podcast, Tom's a friend. And so I want to be a mediator for both of them. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the podcast is about to start. We're going to do some baseball. And then we jump into this book, That All Shall Be Saved. Chris Davis, yeah, he had two... Great seasons with the Orioles, turned that into a huge contract that sucked the money out of the organization and is now the worst hitter in the game. It's kind of unfathomable, but I mean, you, I root for him as a human being that he got the contract. Oh, yeah. He's set up for life, theoretically, in the financial realm, but. Yeah, no, I like the man. I mean, he's a, he's, it's hard to dislike the guy. You want him to do well because he's actually a very witty, very nice, uh, even self effacing fellow uh, with enormous physical gifts but he's just lost the ability to make contact you know uh, which is a requirement for his work yeah yeah Uh, but it seems to be he just can't get he i can tell you what he's doing wrong as as a fanatic of the game Uh he keeps opening his right his front shoulder and pulling everything and Mm -hmm. when he moves his head when he's still keeps his shoulder closed in and strides into the ball and doesn't move his head he's a great hitter but his, he's just physically unable to make himself get back into the correct. He went, wasn't there like a 50 at bat streak where he didn't get a hit at one yeah, point? something like that, yeah. And his demeanor during that, I think he ended it with like a double or something like that. Yeah. But throughout it all, like he took it in stride. I yeah. mean, it's got to be hum- humiliating. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. 
I, I, I would think so. As I say, I like the guy, but uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to be able. I mean, they may end up cutting him by the end and then just swallowing mm-hmm. his contract. Let me ask you a question: Who do you think likes watching the Orioles or seeing the Orioles more, you or Glaber Torres? Uh, well, yes, uh, I think uh, Torres is going to uh, to miss them if uh, if I mean he's going to miss the experience if their starting pitching gets better, I, uh, mm-hmm. which it looks like it may be doing slowly. Hunter Harvey looks like the real thing, so. Uh, but I think Torres is going to start hitting everyone that way. To be honest, if you, he has an almost perfect swing, I just think yeah. he, he just had abnormal stats against the Orioles this year. Yeah, record setting thirteen. But you did notice that the ball was basically a uh, uh, juiced. Yeah, I mean, if they had been using a lacrosse ball, I don't think they could have gotten more uh, launch off the bat. Do you think they changed the ball in the postseason? Yes. Definitely. You could tell that, uh, first of all, the ball was moving more, so obviously the seams were higher. I mean, all the pitchers, normally, mm-hmm. uh, when the weather gets colder, pitchers aren't able to make the ball move more, and yet it was clearly doing so, especially with, uh, uh, especially with um, Grinky. What do you think of the efficacy of changing a ball during a season? Are we actually recording? I didn't mean to talk to you about this, but it just kind of came up. This is my last baseball question. Uh, I, I think that anything that gets us back to uh, uh, a game that doesn't consist in 27 home runs per contest is a good thing. I don't care when they change it back. I'm glad, in fact, that in the postseason uh, the ball was not flying as far. Mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> devastated, uh, of course, by the results of the World Series. In fact, I'm trying to convince myself there was no World Series this year isn't as an orioles fan is that like your big rival even though not a rival i mean you have to understand when i was a kid the orioles were unbeatable and washington was always the worst team in the so you know the senators would come up to baltimore Mm -hmm. and the orioles would sweep them frank robinson would hit you know a three-run home run in the first inning or something um then we would all drive down to RFK and watch the Orioles sweep the, the Senators there. It was great. It was mm-hmm. a whole week of, of watching the Senators yeah. being crushed by the Orioles. Um, the idea now that, that uh, you see, the, the, the team isn't a rival. I mean, the team, the team was stolen from Montreal by, mm-hmm. by a, a corrupt commissioner for a friend. But the city of Washington is a problem if you're a Marylander. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know. There's, there are certain feelings about it that are hard to conquer. I mean, my great dread was that it was going to be a World Series between mm-hmm. uh, Washington and New York. Mm. Who would uh, you have rooted for or more harshly against? No, I mean, it's impossible. I would at that moment have fallen down on my knees and asked God to end the world before the, before the series was played. Mm. It would it have been the only solution. You know? yeah, Do so. you think... Alex Rodriguez can be saved. Because you say they all uh, yes, I, shall I, I, be. I, I, I believe, uh, yes, all can be saved, all shall be saved, yeah. Um, in the case of Alex Rodriguez, it may, you know, take a little longer. <laughs> On the other hand, he seems like a sweet enough guy. I mean, you know, he, he played during a period when... Everyone was cheating, and and uh, that doesn't excuse it, but it does somewhat explain it. I mean, it became the culture of the game. Nonetheless, 
nonetheless, uh, it's uh, my favorite player in the game today is Jose Altuve. Yeah, it's. It, um, I, I, to me, he represents everything beautiful about the game. You can be five foot six mm-hmm. and the best player in the game if your technique is flawless. Did you know that he's actually shorter than Aaron Judge? Because it seems that they've been they, remiss I have to mention seen them, that. I have seen them next to one another, and you do get the impression that, that Judge has a few inches on him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's hard yeah. to see that on TV, but they, the commentators tell us that Joe Buck has informed me of that. Yeah, f- photographs often hide these things, but yeah. No. Actually, some of my favorite images uh, in, in baseball today have to do with, you know, a judge on second base and Altuve standing next to him because, again, it represents something glorious about the game. They're both great players, but if you had to choose one for your team to build around, which would it be? You're taking Goliath in that no. situation. No, I'm going with Altuve. He's, he, but he on the work. aesthetic, if you're just looking, you don't know who they are. Right, right, like, yeah. Mo, mo, yeah, uh, a person who doesn't understand the game might or d- know their stats would, would, but would yeah, definitely Altuve's assume. Said, yeah. But Altuve, you know, he won't hit as many home runs, and the home runs he hits won't necessarily go 495 feet with regularity. But he will have a batting, he'll win batting titles, he'll win gold gloves, he'll, well, the judge is good with the glove, he's not going to get a gold yeah, glove. he's a good He's going to steal bases, his base mm-hmm. running is brilliant. Uh, uh, yeah. And if there's a hanging slider in the bottom of the ninth, game six of the ALCS, he will put it into left field. Yeah, now, was that a slider? First of all, it was high. It was actually, for, well, for him, everything's high. But, I mean, mm-hmm. was that a slider? Because a fastball, I, it looked to me like it said 98 on the screen when it came off the bat. But everyone mm-hmm. kept calling it a slider. Now, of course, an Aroldis Chapman slider may come in at 98. That's the, Yes, yeah. that's exactly the point. I think for him, actually, that might be a breaking ball, 98. Yeah, I mean, that's his off-speed offering. And, uh, yeah, I feel like as someone who is a pastor in Texas, I feel like you've really won over much of my constituency just with that comment you've made right there about Altuve. And I think they're going to all go by your books, especially this most recent one because of that. Look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great, one of the reasons I like Houston so much, other than the fact that they're not the Yankees and they've been, um, is of course the same general manager that built them, uh, up from, from basically scraps created a championship team out of a team that uh, couldn't win to save its life is now the general manager in Baltimore trying mm-hmm. to recreate the great days of old. So mm-hmm. we'll see if he can do it twice. And their success gives you hope and optimism for it what does. your future could be. It, it, it does. It does. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see. It's, it's a hard thing. You know, you learn, you talk about, uh, learning spiritual, uh, humility, learning, um, Learning that uh, uh, the world doesn't center around you and the things you love and that, that you're not among the elect as such. Uh, when I was a child, as I say, the Orioles had the most wins for 20 years mm-hmm. in the game. They were, the, they were a franchise. They had the, the most gold gloves, the most Cy Young mm-hmm. awards. I just assumed that was God's plan for mm-hmm. the world, that yeah. the Orioles would always be in the pennant race. Turns out that's not exactly true. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to let go of that, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. If I, perhaps if we'd started from a different position, perhaps if I'd been a, a Cubs fan, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I would have been better prepared for the disenchantment that came my way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to, to let go, whereas yeah. it's, 
Probably easier to live with, uh, with losing when it's from the beginning. Especially when the losing becomes a kind of romance. I mean, for years, I don't know how the Cubs survived winning the World, how their fans survived winning the World Series, because there's such a mythos uh, of, of, of losing, mm-hmm. of, of, you know, the anguish. They were, they were the children of Israel wandering in the desert, but for more than you know, twice 40 years, and all at once, mm-hmm. uh, they had a championship. What, would, what were they supposed to do with that? How could they process it? I mean, their entire identities uh, had, had, in a sense, in a moment, been stolen from them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how do they? Yeah. How, in, in some ways, the Red Sox had to. Uh, so Red Sox, the same thing. Do the same thing, yeah. Yeah. Even the White Sox, in their own way, yeah. Hmm. That's true. That's true. Uh, before uh, this podcast took place, I had a few of my friends who are fans of your work. Uh, upon hearing that we were going to do this podcast, they said that they were concerned how well you and I would get along. They thought that my sarcasm might be off-putting and i feel like so far they, we've over- they uh, have they read me i see I mean, I mean, yes are they kidding i mean yeah i feel like that it, uh, and so in that sort of trepidation i didn't disclose one thing to you that would make it even more off-putting and that is that i actually am a yankees fan mm-hmm. and what do you think is more unbearable yankees fans or sarcasm well, Yankees fans, obviously. I mean, so sarcasm is, is a healthy impulse. Uh, to following the Yankees is about as depraved a behavior as a, as a person can be accused of. <laughs> what I don't understand is how a, a pastor in Texas could be a Yankees fan. Mm-hmm. Are you, a te- you don't sound was, like a New Yorker to me. No, I was born outside of Philadelphia, and the uh, first stadium I went to as a kid was Yankee Stadium. And, and that's it. I mean, you're that my, cheap a date. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh look here, here's a here's a Nate's hot dog, Nathan's hot dog. Well, of course. I mean, I'll just yeah. I'll I mean, just, that's, uh, that's sell my soul right away to Baphomet over there. Mm-hmm. You know? No, I that's mean, that's actually how my wife proposed to me. She gave me a Nathan's hot dog, and I said, "Yes, I will be with you for the rest of my life." It happens that way. So, if your first uh, first experience had been, well, how old are you? I am uh, 38. So what year were you born? 1981. So, all right. Well, let's say that uh, either Memorial Stadium or, or Camden Yards, because Camden Yards was built in 92, and you'd had a Maryland crab cake, and you'd gone to Camden mm-hmm. Yards as your first baseball experience, you'd be a rock-ribbed I Orioles mean, fan? Who, who am I to say uh, what I would have become? Because I think all of us are not but as free as we think. Are you from Texas? No, I was born in Philadelphia. My oh, dad's right. From, you just said that. You don't. Yeah. You don't necessarily sound like a, a Pennsylvanian either. I think you've been in. Foreign, I've kind of moved foreign to, fields. I've moved a over a, a lot. I moved when I was twelve to Ohio, uh-huh. and then went to school in Texas, and then kind of bounced around a couple of different times. Right, but right, because you've got one of those uh, those heterogeneous sorts of accents. Well, <laughs> look. I mean, if you're born outside of Philadelphia, the the best thing I can say about you is at least you're not a Phillies fan. Um, <laughs> Now, I have nothing against the Phillies. It's their fan base I don't like. I mean, in Philadelphia. They're unbearable. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're the most spiteful fans in the world. We'll I boost Santa Claus I remember when uh, Mike Schmidt in the 83 World Series, Schmidt didn't have a great series because the Orioles had good pit- pitching. It wasn't mm-hmm. because he wasn't trying. Mm-mm. But Eddie Murray wasn't having a good series either till the very last game. The Orioles fans kept cheering for Eddie, but, the, but within two games, the Philadelphia Phillies fans... 
who had no right to expect to be in a World Series without Mike Schmidt there at third, mm-hmm. were, were, were hissing and throwing, you know, <laughs> calling for his hanging, you know. I mean, it, 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 I thought, you know, this is the most ungrateful fan base in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet you think that they can be saved. I do. If you're ranking most unsavable, Phillies fans, Yankees fans, which one? Oh, Yankees fans, obviously. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because the Yankees fan is someone who's all, always already made a compromise with evil in his heart. If you think about the Yankees, I mean, really, what are they? I mean, they, they are the glitziest bordello in town. They've got all the fixtures, all the money. So, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Though an argument can be made that there are owners who have more money than the Steinbrenner family. For you know, example, like the Minnesota Twins owner. Right, but it's the, it's the media contracts that make the difference. It's not the families. Now, it's true. I wish the Angelos family in Baltimore all at once. I mean, and, and I'm pretty much mm-hmm. against immense wealth in private hands uh, just on you know, scriptural grounds. But I, I, I do wish the Angelos family had Jeff Bezos' money because, I'm, because since there's not revenue sharing of any consequence in baseball, yeah, I would like the Orioles simply to be able to buy all the talent in the world and win another, mm. another championship or two before I die. Now, we, I enjoyed it as a child watching them go for the pennant. I'm really getting tired of it just coming around every you know, dozen years or so and yeah. never actually getting past the championship series. Well, my condolences well, go out to you. 2014 was a good year. It's just that, you know, when they got to the ALCS, Manny Machado was injured. Chris Davis was suspended. Um, Matt Wieters was injured. J.J. Hardy was playing with a bad back. So there I was right on the verge of... The cusp. Yeah, you know, and then... But alas. Alas. Such, such is life. Now... One thing that we need to acknowledge is that there is a gentleman in the room next to us who has no idea about 90% of what we just discussed. But what he is eagerly waiting to hear us discuss is universalism. So do you think we should talk about that a little bit? If you must. Yes. Uh, okay, so I, I told you beforehand, I am a um, Church of Christ preacher in Texas. And my... Re- I, I, yeah, I, I, now... I, I'll admit that I don't know one Protestant denomination from another once you get past the big ones. Really? Yeah. So I don't know what Church of Christ is. Okay, so it's a small uh, tradition that's about 100 years old that uh, is heavily uh, influenced by Scripture. And so there is a... Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that, that's yeah. an interesting... And, and <laughs> well, there's a... <laughs> novel I, I'm take, trying yeah. to think of how you describe that. In the, mm. in the best... Well, I mean, are there, is there any magisterial tradition? They're part Lutheran, Calvinist? No, uh, none of that. Uh, just, okay. No, none of that. It's, uh, it comes from the Anabaptist. Okay, so free, free yeah. Free yeah, so it's autonomous congregations. And there is, but like I said, so Scripture is the centerpiece of it. And the idea of the influence of uh, the patristics or philosophy is not part of the tradition I'm from. And so those... Uh, those voices are not as upheld in the world that I came up in. Right. And so an argument that or a conversation that we would have about this subject matter, uh, it's to some degree for some of my people, it would be foreign for them to use arguments of philosophy over scripture as though not that they're over, but in competition or together as though they're equal parts. Mm. How does that change this conversation going forward? Do you think for you? 
Well, in what sense? I mean, you mean that if I were talking to your congregation, what would I? What, what well, would I talk? no, I'm just trying to say. Obviously, you're a philosopher, and that's uh, a large um, among other things. Among other things, yeah. I mean, obviously, you, you translated <laughs> the New Testament, so it's not like. Um, but I, as I, I prefer to think of myself as a baseball fan who dabbles in philosophy. You know, my my profession is baseball fan. Would it be baseball in general or Orioles specific? Both, both, but. No, I think of myself as a writer who does, among other things, theology. But yeah, look, um, the, the issue of, of philosophy and, and scripture, I mean, obviously, we you know, there, there's, a, there's a kind of curious set of issues here. One is why one takes the Bible to be revelation at all. It's because it's embedded, obviously, in a tradition that, that in fact, didn't even have a complete canon such as you know it now until the uh, early 4th century mm-hmm. or the, actually the early 5th century when, when Revelation revelation wasn't in everyone's canon until very well uh, past the 4th century and the decision as to what went in and what went out <laughs> uh, had to be made prudentially but then even when you have a canon of scripture surely you have reasons for believing that it's revelation mm-hmm. right? Uh, you, you never do anything without a prior consultation of your reasoning mind. Surely, I mean, you know, the, you don't you don't simply know as a matter of a direct intuition of eternal truth that the Bible is is a trustworthy guide to anything. Right? Mm-hmm. So, it, it would be odd, obviously, to oppose the two. But in the book, you see, people keep talking about it. But it is a it is a philosophical book because principally the argument's negative. It is that every version of the Christian story that doesn't end with a universalist construal turns out to be internally incoherent and creates something I call a contagion of equivocity. The very terms that the Christians are using are progressively evacuated of any real conceptual content mm. when that happens what is faith it's nothing at all it's simply the repetition of formulas that you imagine have meaning but that you ultimately the more you try to define them the more elusive they become of definition mm-hmm. that said the pages devoted to scripture in the book are more substantial than people seem to want to grant i don't have to go through every single verse to demonstrate when i characterize christ's pronouncements on judgment one can go ahead then and match the characterization to the individual verses if one's you know it's not that hard it's it's sort Mm -hmm. of like putting lego blocks together uh but the larger reading of the eschatology of of the new testament in terms of First uh, Corinthians 15 is the great key, uh, you know, in the way that Gregory of Nyssa did and Origen did is is actually sophisticated, even if it doesn't take up hundreds of pages. I, I, I trust readers to be able to follow the case and then consult the text mm-hmm. on their own. As also is the issue of of preteritism or, or how one understands the prophecies of Christ during his ministry in light of his own. Uh, death and resurrection and and the eschatological language that attends that. And then, of course, Meditation 3 uh, in the book, which isn't specifically a meditation devoted only to Scripture, nonetheless begins with a reading of Paul 
in Romans 9 to 11, which is, of course, the thorniest passage for dealing with certain classic uh, issues of election and dereliction, which I believe are the, like the most systematically misread chapters of the Bible in, mm-hmm. in Western Christian history, at least. The reading I give them, it, 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 you know, it's not... The, the reading I give of those verses has the great virtue of just being literally accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what Paul's actually saying, but it, but it's also the standard reading in Eastern tradition. But in the West, as you no doubt know, very different readings are uh, uh, traditional. Um, so the scriptural uh, the scriptural clues are all there. I mean, I lay out the framework for reading the New Testament in light of the larger argument. And I point to the figures like Gregory of Nyssa. And the, but at the end of the day, the book is an essay, mm-hmm. a philosophical essay about the internal coherence of Christian language. And if it became overburdened, uh, no one would be able to follow. Now, as it, as it happens, I find out a great number of readers can't follow it anyway, judging from the more hostile reviews. You know, I, yeah. I just read one from the Wall Street Journal by a guy named Barton Swaim. And I, I think I deduce from his name that he probably began his existence as a minor character in a Gore Vidal novel. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, it was clear they had no idea what was going on in the book whatsoever. All they could say was it was shocking to them that I use strong language about ideas that I find repellent. That is, I called them repellent, even though they were uttered by, oh, I don't know, Thomas Aquinas. But in the book, I don't blame anyone in particular. If you've read it, you know, I, I'm very strong in my language about certain ideas, mm-hmm. but I blame all of us for having painted ourselves into the corner of venturing ideas about God that we would be ashamed to venture about even the worst of men. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but let me just say, I mean, it, it, it's obvious that uh, even in its, in its compact form, uh, it's going to be a while before the actual argument uh, becomes clear in many people's minds. Yeah, so. Okay, so I'm thinking of people who are listening to this right now who haven't read the book, um, I'm trying to think of a thumbnail to to summarize the big picture idea so that they can at least jump in right there with my next set of questions. Um, I could try to come up with one myself, and maybe you could probably say it better than me, of the brief synopsis of the idea that um, the only understanding that makes sense is that in the end God will save all. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I, if I were to summarize the argument for you, we would never get around to your questions. What I can say about this uh, is that the argument is based not only on things like, you know, just basic logic or basic understanding of what it would constitute for a, cre- for a rational being to have rational freedom and all that. It's also based on scriptural and doctrinal uh, foundational claims of the faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, things as simple as Christ instructing, commanding his disciples to think about uh, God's relation to his creatures in ter- and to, to them mm-hmm. uh, by analogy to their understanding of their own fatherhood. Yeah. You know, and, and how they, they, they relate to their children. Yeah, Matthew 7, yeah. Uh, right. And so, of course, uh, there the issue of whether or not our language about God has any analogical continuity between the way we use these words in an earthly, purely imminent way and the way we use them in order to refer to God is actually a crucial question. Mm -hmm. 
uh, does do our words mean anything? And if they do, it's, uh, uh, and I'm not, and and which words should be meaningful for us? I don't base on philosophical considerations. I base them precisely on the words of Christ and the example of Christ. Um, and at the end of the day, the claim of the book is. And I mean, I can be more elaborate if you want. I can You're explain. I can explain the argument step by step. No, no, I just. But but at the end of the day, yeah, I, all that language, all the affirmations where we we make about God in Christ, uh, fall apart uh, unless, say, Gregory of Nyssa got it right. If mm-hmm. as much as I love Augustine, if the late Augustine got it right, you know, if that's by get it right, I mean that's the correct Christian narrative. Mm-hmm. Then you'd have to conclude that Christianity is is a, is a internally incoherent and therefore false religion. Hmm. Uh, for some, the word universalism mm-hmm. connotates a sort of pluris, pluralistic ending that is devoid of a Christological. Soteriology, that it's not Christ that saves everyone. But that's not what you're... The look on your face obviously said that's not what you're talking about. Yeah, the, I mean, the claim of all the classic universalists is not that Christ is one of the various ways in which it's that because of the activity of Christ, mm-hmm. all ultimately will find their way to union with the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But anyway, yeah, go on. Well, I was just saying that for some... People who'd read that read that word the very first time, they would be off put and think this has nothing to do with uh, a salvation through what Christ has done, which is the antithesis of what your argument is. And I, I assume that the response from the Orthodox community compared to like a Protestant response, as especially in the reviews that you started to read, are, are they saying different messages? Are, are you feeling the the pushback is different in one community than yeah, the other? Yeah, I mean, you'll get pushback in every community. We have fundamentalist Orthodox uh, in this country because we have a lot of ex-fundamentalists who became Orthodox and mm-hmm. and carried over their habits of thinking with them. That is, that there's only one correct way of, of you know, Quite often, the most uh, the most ferociously uh, unpleasant Orthodox figures in America are all former evangelicals who think that that the faith, uh, you know, a tradition of two thousand years, should be like the evangelicalism they left behind. That is, that mm-hmm. you could sum it up in a faith statement at the back of the church, and it's quite clear. And they're quite unprepared to discover that, uh, well, actually, orthodoxy is a huge tradition, and uh, there have been plenty of orthodox universalists throughout the ages, and Eastern Christian universalists. In general, though, yeah, I mean, the the orthodox community as a whole, I can't actually name names, let's just say that plenty of hierarchs, bishops, and such have uh, have you know been very encouraging about the book, mm-hmm. and in the public reviews, I think you'll find that uh, that that the Orthodox are always much more open uh, in the total uh, to a universalist construal of the faith because it's part of the tradition they understand. It has a patristic roots. It's a way of reading scripture. Uh, that's familiar to them from centuries of precedent. And in the 20th century, so many of the greatest Orthodox thinkers like Bulgakov and Evdokimov and Olivier Clément uh, were universalists quite openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made the pre-statement about uh, the evangelical who wants to have the belief statement that you can have in the back of the document. Yeah. And that is so normal for many 
that we can't even see the short-sightedness in that. What would you say is a way for us to see that, how that muddies our understanding of who God is when that's what we're striving for? Well, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I, I presume that even an evangelical uh, raised in a very small, uh, in narrow tradition without a lot of, uh, of exposure to the 2,000 years of Christian thought throughout the world, from, you know, Central Asia to the Americas, uh, would still nevertheless be able to, to, to recognize that God's infinite, right? And, and that therefore the, the, the attempt to reduce the mystery of God or even the mystery of God's actions in history or God's actions in Christ to a simple set of propositions is an inherently defective way of understanding the relation of the human intellect to the divine reality, right? So my advice to them would be, well, you've started out with the right intentions. Now expand your knowledge of the tradition, you know, expand your knowledge of its mystical Mm -hmm. traditions, its mystical dimensions. Uh, Read the church fathers. I mean, they were the ones who, you know, uh, gave you the Bible that you're reading, you know, to be honest. I remember years ago, when I was lecturing uh, at University of Virginia, which is an interesting experience because it's a very good university, but of course it's also regionally determined. So a lot of young evangelicals, some of them, and in my lifetime, one of the great oddities, one of the strange developments in, in my lifetime has been seeing the evangelicals in America progressively adopting a Calvinist theology. That was not the case when I was a kid. That was much more rare. But anyway, one of them came forward uh, I remember his name was Chris. He was utterly humorless. He had little round glasses that reminded me of Himmler. But but he was a well-meaning guy. And he had never heard of orthodoxy before because, you know, I'm lecturing on the history and I'm mentioning all the different traditions, the fathers. I mentioned orthodoxy. And then someone explained that I was orthodox and he came to me and he said... <laughs> uh, I don't know anything about, because he he didn't like anything I was saying, you know, saying that well Christ actually taught you know salvation through good works. That'll show, you know that that's a way of shocking a Calvinist into you know reaching for his gun. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's Virginia. They all have guns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a godly way of life. But um, so he finally said, "Well, does your church have a faith statement?" To which. Uh, my quite irresponsible reply was, I can think of two. I tried the Nicene Creed and the Bible. We wrote both. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go over? He didn't, he didn't know. He didn't get it. I mean, I, then I, I said, well, so I invited him to uh, a service. It mm. would have, that would have, that would have uh, changed his, uh, he would have come away thinking that I was some member of some sort of pagan uh, mm-hmm. cult that, you know, I don't think, I don't think a, a uh, Calvinist evangelical from the, the hinterlands of Virginia suddenly thrust into the middle of a Byzantine divine liturgy would even recognize which religion it was. You know? That might be a fair assessment. Yeah. That might be a fair assessment. Uh, but he probably would appreciate the clothing because the clothing y'all have can be a lot better than some of us. I, I don't no, know. He might, he might have thought it idolatrous. I have no idea. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Uh, on a conversation about universalism, it's almost like there's a uh, time clock, that go, like a pitch 
pitch cl- count uh, that as soon as you get to so many words, there has to be a reference to Hitler. And yes, I, and, and 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 conscious of this, I uh, I kept close close count of the words I used till I got to Hitler. Yeah, once you get to about eighty, it's like pitches. You have to get about eighty pitches, and you're like this this book's either done or it has to reference Hitler, and so you right. do. And one of the things I appreciate about the way that you you have a conversation about Hitler is that you question the freedom he had to be who he was. Now, you don't d- diminish his culpability or responsibility, right. but you make an argument about how much freedom do we truly have, yeah. uh, and he is a prime example. Well, one of the, the odd things about uh, a lot of modern Christians is is that they're at once trying to be modern and trying to be Christians. And of course, the modern the modern narrative of of freedom is a purely libertarian narrative. It's just simply the power to choose. But how does the power to choose work? You know, uh, if the power to choose is actually uh, deliberate, that is, one chooses because one has a reason for choosing. That reason has to be grounded in a as what what I would call this like a uh, a receding uh, set of rationales until you arrive at just a sort of very basic human longing for the good or for happiness, mm-hmm. or, right? That's what it means to be free. If you don't have that horizon, then your choice is just a sort of like a physiological action. It might as well be a, uh, you know, uh, a heart attack as, as a choice. It, you, you're no more responsible. But even if you are responsible, then, in what ways are you responsible? The classical understanding of freedom, which held sway not only in ancient pagan and Jewish and Christian thought, but that it was you know understood uh, even up into the, the you know, early modern philosophy. I mean, Kant, for instance, if you're asking what freedom is, he he would not say it's simply the power to choose. Freedom is the power is a progressive possession of the ability to choose for a reason in a state of rational competency, knowing what it is you're choosing or not choosing, right? And so for someone like Augustine, the highest state of freedom is an inability to sin. Why? Because what real freedom is, is the ability to flourish as the thing you are, the creature you are, the nature you possess, unhindered by ignorance, unhindered by a history perhaps of traumas, unhindered by physical or spiritual or mental conditions. And so freedom is something we achieve only in union with God. For mm-hmm. And a, a good way of, do you know the, uh, the, the old Frank Stockton story, The, the, uh, the Lady or the Tiger? Uh-uh. Okay, it's a, it's what a, it's a famous um, American short story. Frank Stockton was a, was a wonderful storyteller, and, and it's and it's a parable about this barbaric kingdom where if you commit a crime, the punishment is you put it in an arena in which there are two doors. Behind one door is a beautiful maiden from the village, and if you choose that door, not knowing which is which. She marries you. Now, this isn't always a happy thing, because it even if it's assumed the criminal is a man, obviously, as normally is the case, mm-hmm. uh, even if you're already married, you're forced to marry her. So it's, it may be a happy ending, but it's certainly, whatever the case, happier than the alternative, which mm-hmm. is a hungry tiger. And in, in the story, uh, a, a low-level courtier has fallen in love with the princess, one of the king's daughters. 
The king finds out about it, sentences him to the arena. The princess is up in the gallery watching. She has found out behind which door. There's a tiger, and there's a... Okay, and she signals to him which door to choose. Okay, and then, but which one did she choose? And the story ends there. You ha- it, you know, oh, oh. It's a wonderful story, but... <laughs> Let's put the princess aside. Let's just talk about the guy in the arena. Let's say he uh, um, has, you know, what would make him freer? Not to know which door was which and to be forced to choose in a purely libertarian, purely spontaneous way or to know which was a tiger, which was a girl, so that he could make an informed choice. In what sense would he, in which of those situations would he be more free? My first thought is if he had the information, then he would be more free. Right. But in having that information, what's the likelihood of him choosing the tiger? Non-existent. Right. So the more free he becomes, the more limited the actual choices he's likely to make are. Hmm. The ability to choose isn't what makes you free. It's the ability to choose well. And having chosen well, to find that the, more, the freer you are, the fewer choices there are you have to make. Hmm. Until, you know, again, with Augustine, the highest freedom is to be so utterly fulfilled in your internal nature as a rational creature that you are perfectly transparent to God. Hmm. In which case... You're incapable of sinning because there's no impulse to sin. Everything is the sheer delight of union with the good. Yeah. But if you think about it, the simple ability to choose is nothing. That's a deliberative faculty. It could be trivial. It could be tragic. Mm -hmm. To be free is to know what you're choosing. And that is never perfect in this life. So there's no such thing as a perfect culpability. Hitler's definitely culpable. Uh, Definitely... Uh, evil. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the notion that any of us exists in a state of of such pure deliberative liberty that we know the good for itself, we know God for himself, know our own nature for what it is, know what would bring it fulfillment and then would choose evil, is a fiction of the modern libertarian concept of freedom that's logically and existentially unsustainable. It cannot be true. It has Mm -hmm. never been true. If it were true, it would make freedom a nonsense. It would simply mean freedom is a physiological set of accidents that we illuse, that we delude ourselves into thinking we're, we're made freely. You have this great line in the book about how uh, eternal punishment is not something, or I'm getting your quote wrong, obviously I'm not reading it, but it's not something that anyone merits, but grace also isn't something that right. anyone right. merits. I mean, and, and, uh, and but... How can, there are ways of reading that, that that can sever that from the question of the character of God. You can end up with the Calvinist language of pure divine sovereignty as its own good, which I regard as the single most corrupt, diabolical idea ever to have polluted Christian thought. Because? Because sovereignty is, I mean, God's sovereignty is always in reality united to his infinite goodness. The notion that the sovereign, that his sovereign power is is uh, the highest name for God or the highest good in God uh, is is based entirely on a sort of early modern co- uh, concept of absolute monarchy in which power rather than the power of the good or the power of the love becomes what defines 
the right mm-hmm. of the monarch. Uh, and it's a perverse, all-too-human notion of God, and it's c- quite contrary to Revelation, where we're, 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 you know, it's like when God, when, whether you, however you understand the line in First Timothy that says God wills, and it is wills, fillet, you know, that all, all should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, you have to take it that it is, in fact, the intention of God, uh, the, w- the will of God, that the good be accomplished in and for all, not just that his sovereignty be displayed mm-hmm. in his power of election and dereliction. Uh, the latter is, a, is an almost satanic parody mm-hmm. of, of, of God, of, of what the Christian view of God is. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even remember the original question we started with. What was You're it? Good. How about I give you a different one? Um, uh, Miroslav Volf uh, over in uh, Yale. Where's Yale? Connecticut? Connecticut? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> Last time I looked, yeah. Yeah, I haven't been there New, recently. New Haven, if I recall. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Uh, when I've talked to Miroslav, it's through the computer, so it looks like he's just inside my computer. Um, so the actual location is lost on me. Uh, I've heard him, or I, I've read him make the argument that uh, nonviolence is only possible if there is an understanding that God has vengeance in the end, that there is some sort of uh, retribution for the wrongdoers, for the Hitlers of the world. And the, que- the line of thinking is, if vengeance is not the Lord's in the end on those people, then there will be the, this sense that I need to take vengeance right now. Yeah, that's, that's perverse. Uh, first of all, the word translated as vengeance is ekdikeosis, which really means, means reestablishing or establishing justice. Um, uh, let me ask you this, uh, to be honest. Um, how often does the Apostle Paul talk about hell? I mean, obviously not at all. He does talk about the fire of judgment, though, mm-hmm. in 1 Corinthians 3. I'm sure you remember the uh, the passage. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, Burning up the perishable with the imperishable. That yeah. I mean, you're the one who wrote a translation of the Bible. I didn't do that, so I trust you memorized it a little better than me. Well, basically, if any any man's works, you know. Well, I'm not going to. The, the the point is, is the works we do will be tested by fire. Who and what we are. Mm-hmm. For some, those works will pass the test of that fire and be acceptable. For others, the works will be consumed, but the the uh, agents of those works will be saved, as by fire. This this was taken by figures like Clement of uh, Alexandria, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Isaac of Nineveh, Theodore of Mopsuestia, Diodor of Tarsus, Theodoret of Cyrus. I could go on, but the whole universalist tradition, right up through uh, George MacDonald and Sergei Bulgakov, as referring to all. I mean, there's no reason to limit those lines to some notion of, of, the, of the small company of the elect. And the point there is that, that retribution uh, is, is an unworthy notion of how God works towards his creatures, that hell is simply the fire of divine love working ceaselessly to destroy evil, not by destroying those of us who are because we're all culpable, but we're also all victims of this, mm-hmm. and we are all prisoners. I mean, it's right there in First John chapter eight. I mean, not First John, the Gospel of John chapter eight. Right, the sinner is actually the prisoner of sin, who can only be made free by the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the sinner is not in any way absolutely to be identified with the sin. Mm -hmm. To me, the notion that we practice peacefulness in this life because we know that God is a is a violent monster in the next world. I know that's not how Wolf was putting it, but I mean to me that's the the reasoning is that rather than imitating God as revealed in Christ, we're trusting God to to do the uh the the uh difficult work of of visiting wrath and vengeance uh on our on those who have done wrong. Uh, to me, this is perverse. We are called to imitate. We are called to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That, those are the words of Christ. Therefore, our, our acts are peaceful because they represent, in the shape of our lives, the shape of the divine life as, as unfolded in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, to create a dialectic there rather than recognize the con- continuity between the search for perfection, moral perfection in this life through peace, and therefore obviously the intention of love and peace as the perfection of God, to me, just corrupts the gospel uh, beyond recuperation. Mm-hmm. It seems that Jesus' teaching to love your enemies would somehow be represented in God's action, too. I would think that's the point, yeah, is that, is that actually who God is utterly subverts our notion of what is just and decent and right at times. Look, I mean, uh, the whole story of Christianity is what? You have a, a preacher from the Galilee who, if you really look at what he's preaching, and especially if you detach it from the kind of uh, gloss of emollient translations of the past and actually look at what his words really mean in the Greek, you find that principally he's a social agitator on behalf of the poor. He's pretty close to being an anarcho-communist revolutionary, except that he's trusting in God rather than the power of the sword to liberate the poor from their oppressors. And, and, and those who are condemned are, are principally the powerful and the rich, not, not the harlots. They're entering heaven before mm-hmm. you are. Uh, Christ isn't a moralist in that sense. Okay, he is put to death by the combined political and religious authorities of his day, both pagan and Jewish. I mean, and yet we say he's God. I mean, that in itself is already one of the most subversive ideas ever to have appeared in human history. But then we say that not only is God not well pleased with the sacrifice, which should be pleasing to the divine, because why is he killed? He's killed to restore the sacred order of society, to restore the hierarchies and powers that reign, which are all accorded a sacred meaning in their time and place, both by pagans and Jews. Even Pontius Pilate is a kind of priestly figure mm-hmm. in the way Rome understood itself because the, you know it's a divine dispensation under Rome. He represents not only the emperor but the gods. The father totally reverses the verdict. Is it, you know, it very rudely, too, if you think mm-hmm. about it. I mean, he's very inconsiderate to these very eminent men who've killed Jesus. He's not at all interested in preserving the social order, and he's certainly not interested in the question of, of uh, justice in the sense of the proper and equitable balance of culpability or blame. You know, it's not that. The one who... The one who teaches us to love our enemies, the one who says in John, to see me is to have seen the Father, 
the one who for us is the model of God precisely in refusing violence but also denouncing injustice is Mm -hmm. the one that God raises up for us. The notion that somehow then that we would we would we would uh, see his moral counsels to us as a provisional, um, how can I, a, 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 provi- a provisional sort of set of counsels for not presuming to uh, execute uh, God's prerogatives. Mm-hmm seems to me to miss the point altogether. Either this is the revelation of who God is, or it's just another boring religion uh, about, uh, you know, with with a set of rules of conduct that are more ritual than moral. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is seen about God in the person of Jesus is the inherent value in each and every person. And it's not just the powerful, it's not just the um, the morally pure, but it's everyone. Yeah. And w- one of the things that you talk about in the book is the idea I mean, that... I mean, how extraordinary this is. I mean, there were other... Remember, I mean, Judaism is a wonderfully, er, you know, uh, uh, late antique Judaism is a wonderfully moral religion in this sense, too. It has that whole prophetic inheritance. It has the law of Moses, uh, Moses' rules for protecting the poor from predatory lenders and all that. So mm-hmm. it's not... Uh, it's not like it's a complete break with the past. Nonetheless, Jesus associates with people who, even the the most well-meaning of of persons of his society, like lepers. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a form of uncleanness. It's not just you know, it's not just fastidiousness regarding hygiene. I don't want to catch leprosy, and probably it's not even really leprosy that is talking. It's probably like just a form of eczema that was, but. Uh, the point is, they were also ritually unclean. Um, so even uh, even dissident prophetic communities like the Essenes wouldn't have accepted those people. In mm-hmm. you know, hmm. I mean, there's something so radical in the example of Christ towards the excluded that is very hard. It's very hard to see a, uh, see a parallel to it. You can see its adumbrations in the prophets and in the law, but you do. It, it's such a and and then to be told that this, you know, e- this even this indifference to ritual purity is the true form of God, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is is a break in human consciousness. Yeah, so, yeah. And and that break should be a picture of the eschatology that we're going to experience. If Jesus says and shows everyone matters here, then in the the age to come, it seems that that would be part of it. And in the book, you talk about the idea that everyone is indispensable. And yeah. that the that because of that, God's will cannot be fulfilled if everyone is somehow outside of it, or if anyone is outside of it. If anyone is, but isn't that obvious, right? I mean, I, I quote Gregory of Nyssa in it. I talk about his metaphysics of 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 the, of the first man, which again. Uh, one has to understand properly. I mean, I, uh, among the hostile reviews of the book, there were those who, for some reason, thought I was I was talking about some sort of idealism in which the first man of Gregory is like the eternal ideal of the human, which is, of course, precisely what it isn't in Gregory. It's the totality of all human beings united into Christ as, uh, under Christ as their head, and this is how he reads the two different ac- creation accounts in Genesis in the beginning. You know, there's humanity created after the image, which is all of us united in love to Christ, the mm-hmm. one true man. And then there's the historical unfolding of this. But 
at a different you know, point. I mean, I, I, I would have to urge people to read the book to get the argument there because, again, we, we don't have time here. If you think about what, it, what the conditions are that make us persons and the degree to which our personality, our, our personhood, rather, is something dependent upon and contingent upon an endlessly ramifying association of other persons, one that ultimately uh, you can't reach the end of, there comes a point when you realize that the willingness or even the possibility of excluding anyone from that that company in the end, in a sense, excludes the, the totality. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there I have to direct people to the book because uh, I think that argument uh, you know, has to be unfolded so people understand what I'm saying. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the other arguments that might be best addressed in the book, but I thought it's at least noteworthy, the idea of there being a place where God is not sovereign, where God does not exist, seems to also be an extra-biblical idea. Yeah. That If there's this idea of a hell where God somehow isn't over it, it seems that, that would complicate who God is. Well, I mean, we, uh, I mean some people, again, if, if one's thinking only in terms of sovereignty, in which God has conquered, and therefore these are his prisoners in his torture chamber, if it's his. You know, you, 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 there are people for whom that might be adequate because they're thinking in terms purely of sovereign power rather than the kind of power that's revealed in, in Christ. But the scriptural claims are actually quite strange. They, you know, if you, if, again, if you read the Greek, they claim that all beings in the heavens, on earth, below the earth, you know, in the sea, will not just confess, but joyfully praise mm-hmm. God. That God will be all in all, not just all over all. It's a very interesting phrase in the Greek. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and even when we talk about subordination, I mean, read the, you know, that, uh, you know, Christ will subordinate all things to the Father. That is, you know, let's keep the actual etymological meaning there because it's the same in the Greek and in the Latin, subordinate, you know, order under mm-hmm. does not necessarily doesn't just mean subjugate. Uh, it, you know, it, it all. F- What's the difference? Well, to subjugate is simply to exercise power over. To put things in order under is to restore an, oh, wow. uh, uh, an orderly set of relationships, which are the whole, the all. Mm-hmm. But to say that God is all in all is making a much more radical statement than that God simply is overall. That you know, well, I've subdued my prisoners and they're burning in hell, and I, it is that that God. Uh, is himself comes is in a sense fully himself as God in every aspect of creation, hmm. and if there's a heart from which God has been banished, let's leave apart. Let's leave aside the idea of a realm as if hell were a real place rather than a state. But if there is a heart, if there is a will from which God has been eternally banished, God is not God in that will. Mm-hmm. He is not the all in that will. He is, in fact, because that will is choosing some other end than God. So there's a, there's a competing reality there. He has not achieved the fullness of his presence as the one who is all in all. The, the early Christian song that Paul quotes to the Church of Philippi, uh, where, <clears throat> excuse me, where it says in the Christ hymn that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Yeah, and every tongue, again, joyfully, joyfully it would be i mean the you, you, the the verb there uh for confess yeah 
uh, if you go back to the Septuagint, it's always used to translate a joyous, meaning a joyous act of conf- huh. a joyous act of praise, not simply a forensic admission of something. It's not simply say, I acknowledge. This isn't out of compulsion. They're, they're exuberant yes. to say this. Yes. Ex Well, if, if you say so, you know, at will, ex homologicite, it, it means uh, they will laud and magnify praise gladly. That's the way it's always used in the Septuagint, and the Greek of the New Testament is entirely based on the Greek usages of the Septuagint. It gets all of its religious vocabulary from that. And understand, that's the Bible that even most Jews at the time knew. They actually Mm -hmm. couldn't read Hebrew for the most part. Most educated Jews in Hellenistic Judea, but even in the Galilee, would have been exposed principally to the Greek text, and and so, and so that's what they would have been picturing. Yeah, so you, so it helps. Well, we already know what the word means in Greek, but to get an extra sense of how it's used in relation to the to the language that Aramaic speaking Jews might, have, it's always used as a translation of a st- specifically for praise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's not it's not simply you know. Uh, someone who, under coercion, under compulsion, under under torture, uh, is forced to acknowledge mm-hmm. God's lordship. It is. It, it's. It's an image of cosmic praise. Hmm. Okay. So, true or false? Origin was he a heretic? No. Did the uh, was there a council that said this is a heretical idea? No. Okay, so we're, that's not... The Fifth Ecumenical Council had appended to it, after the fact, a set of canons condemning a set of beliefs that later came to be called originism. Mm-hmm. We don't know where these beliefs come from. They might have been uh, Simon Barsudeli's or may have been inaccurately attributed to Evagrius Ponticus, whatever. We know that, however, there weren't actually origins teachings, but it wouldn't matter if they were... Uh, because uh, those teachings, uh, th- those canons were added after the fact. Origen's name was inserted into a list of heretics, but again, that list is after the fact. So none of this actually happened at the council, and so it would seem to be, if, according to the tradition's understanding of conciliar inspiration, have no, have no authority. Mm-hmm. So no, you know, but it wouldn't matter. If the council said it had been so foolish as to proclaim him a heretic, it would simply have meant that the council had had uh, proved itself inadequate to the task of pronouncing on doctrine. Hmm. Uh, Origen is the foundation of all Christian developed Christian theology. Uh, people who don't understand us, only Paul is of comparable importance for the later development of Christian thought. The whole philosophical, hermeneutical, spiritual tradition that gave us, including, that gave us also even the doctrines that Protestants still adhere to, thinking that they can be found directly in Scripture and don't require, you know, all of this is first given form by the work of Origen. Hmm. Without Origen, there is no such thing as a Christian intellectual tradition. Uh, John Baer, the very fine Orthodox scholar, uh, dean of St. Vladimir's, although he's about to move to uh, uh, Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, I think his, 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 his well, it's, it's sort of like the invention of rugby. You know, everyone was playing 
uh, football, that is soccer, and then one, then Origin picked up the ball and said, oh, I have a new game. Hmm. Immediately they threw him off the team, but everyone's been playing rugby ever since. Hmm. You know? that's, that's good. Uh, I feel like we've covered a lot. Jay, is there anything that uh, you think we should uh, get to here? Uh, thanks, by the way. Uh, I just one one uh, question to maybe go a little further into one um, one of these words that you're trying to reassert a meaningful definition for that seems to have been vacated of anything meaningful. Uh, when I when I think of a particular picture of the Christian story that I think is really popular, two of the features of that story are. Um, that you know, God the Father punished Jesus because without punishment there's no justice, and that those who don't avail themselves of said punishment through some very kind of conscious decision to accept that on their behalf then end up in another form of, of retributive punishment, which is mm-hmm. eternal hell. So all of that to me kind of turns on a, what feels to me like a very impoverished idea of justice. Yeah. And I just wondered if you could speak a little more about what a theologically formed vision of justice means in your construction yeah i i do wonder why they think the father punished mm-hmm. i mean what, what you know this notion that that on the cross god was pouring out his wrath on on sin all by pouring it out on christ is a confusion of different verses of scripture you know it's also a late development in christian thought in the early centuries uh no one talked this way nor should they have done um Part of it is, you know, problems of translation. For instance, you know, Greek terms that have a, a, a meaning in civil law are replaced in Latin by terms that have a meaning in criminal law. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, the whole notion that, uh, that that God's justice is is one of retribution, uh, and without this, there cannot there there there, there, there cannot be salvation. Uh, is neither biblical nor logical. Uh, but it also is a curious thing. I mean, I, I think, and I just ask people to go back to the text. Ideally, go to a very accurate translation of the New Testament. Let me think Can of one. Can you think of one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, okay. So, yeah, go to, go to mine. But really ask, what, is, what does Christ proclaim as justice? Mm-hmm. I mean, what does he read from Isaiah? For instance, I mean, he, 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 you know, it's even the talk of of the judgment to come. All right, it's 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 not that the retribution exacts a a payment that settles the affairs. It's that those who are oppressing the poor and the excluded and the marginalized will be thrown down, will be left in ruins because they're not they, you know, they will not enter in with the harlots and with the poor and with every, into the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, then, you know, the, the imagery that Christ uses, again, for this, which is mixed, uh, sometimes image of ruin and destruction, sometimes ruin, sometimes exclusion, sometimes imprisonment and torture, although, again, as I like to point out, the images of imprisonment and torture always come with an until the price is paid. Even that's not retributive. I mean, that 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 comes from that, that that those images of imprisonment come from a time when you had a debt to, to discharge. Not what you weren't imprisoned. You weren't being punished retributively. It's that you hadn't fulfilled yet. I mean, it, it, very few criminals were in jail in Christ's time. The jails were debtors' prisons. 
criminals just tended to be murdered by the state. You know, you, you stole something, you were killed. You know, it was that simple. And, and there was, you didn't spend a lot of time in prison. You were arrested one day, you were dead the next day. Uh, these are not images of retribution. You know, they, they are, they're, they're definitely images of revolution in one sense. They're definitely images of, you know, as in the Magnificat, you know, the, the powerful having to answer to, uh, for what they've done. But it's not that God is exacting justice simply by the act of retribution. He's exacting justice by overcoming evil and saving from evil. Um, and I, I really honestly believe that if you uh, attend just to the texts, you'll see that... And, you know, the idea of retribution makes sense to us. Read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it makes sense to us, but apparently... It's not the sense that God wants us to make. Hmm. You know, the, turning the other cheek is actually unjust if, if we understand justice in terms of retribution. But it's supremely just if we understand injustice as the inco- overcoming of evil with love. Hmm. That's good. There are plenty more areas where we could have gone, uh, in, including uh, maybe helping patch things up between you and Tom Wright. Maybe we could... Uh, um, yeah, about that. Let let me say um, that's never going to happen. I mean, at a personal <laughs> level, maybe. Uh, I just um, I think uh, that that we have such radically different understandings of late antiquity and of Judaism and uh, in the Hellenistic Greco-Roman world. We have such radically different understandings of them that we're never going to read these texts in the same way. And there's also the you know, the small problem that I'm absolutely right and he's totally <laughs> wrong. Uh, but hey, you know, what can I say? He, he, it's not his fault. He just, you know, he's, he's not me. One of the things I appreciate about you is that you're not bashful to acknowledge when what you're saying is deeply believed by you to be very true. And I, I acknowledge well, that as a strength. I, 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 I hate mealy-mouthed people. You know, if, you, if something... Now, here's something you can learn from Jesus right away, is that it's good to be uh, opposed to injustice and all that. But he never gives us... And, and even good to be humble in the proper times. But if something is worth denouncing, like the notion that the blessed saints in heaven will derive greater felicity from seeing the sufferings of the damned in hell, which is something that Aquinas says, drawn from Peter Lombard. Don't, simply because it was Aquinas who said it, say, well, I find this idea problematic. It's a loathsome and evil idea. Call it loathsome and evil, even if someone named Barton Swaim in the, in the Wall Street Journal will then become... <laughs> terrifically, terrifically unhappy with you and, mm-hmm. and, and emerge from the pages of that Gore Vidal novel <laughs> to denounce you in turn. I've, I fully respect what the kids would call this as throwing shade, uh, and I fully respect your commitment to doing that. Thank you. Thank so you. Uh, I, I appreciate your time, and yes, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.